All right. <laughs> Whoa. It's like the mental health version of Eye of the Tiger. Like, you know how the Eye of the Tiger gets you going busy? <laughs> I do know. This guy is so fascinating. I follow him on TikTok. <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson at the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sassan will bring us a conversation about Abbott Elementary and work friendships. I'm very unfamiliar with those. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, our mobile phone ownerships and age of acquisition. I love that use of acquisition um, associated with child adjustment, a five-year prospective study among low-income Latinx children. And then... In good or bad advice, we will be going through some social media posts, some of which sent by listeners. Thank you so much. As always, if you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at Attached Podcast, or go directly to the source, attachedpodcast.com, and send us a message. As always, for bonus content, and to kindly support our little podcast, please go to our Patreon page and consider becoming a member. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all of those numerous places, please consider rating and reviewing it and, of course, subscribing to it. But before we get to all of that loveliness, how are you guys doing? What's up? Tell me stories. How's it going? What's... I have been watching and rewatching uh, Dairy Girls. Oh my gosh. It's such a fantastic show. I so recommend it. For people who have not watched, it is uh, actually a BBC, like Channel 4 production from the UK. And you can find it on Netflix if you have access to Netflix. And it started actually over there several years ago, but the third season was delayed by COVID and COVID. only just was released in the US a few weeks ago and it is so phenomenal. It's about this Irish uh, group of teenagers who are like best friends and all of their family dynamics, but also especially like their dynamics as friends. And it's Mm. so sweet, but it's absolutely hilarious. It is one of the best shows ever. And I super recommend it. Like the second I finished season three. It was like rewatch time. It's really? really it's really fantastic. It's adorable. So you made that recommendation to me and you were like, oh my gosh, season three's out. You have to watch it. And I was like, oh yeah, I definitely should. Turned on Netflix. I hadn't even finished season two yet, Sarah. So you have a lot to yeah. be able to look forward to, which so is I started, exciting. Yeah, catching up with on season two. And really the soundtrack I think is worth oh, so all amazing. of it. It's like based it's so in- fun early 90s type era and um in northern ireland area so very political uh backdrop but like really funny teenage family dynamics it might be a perfect show so yes i agree 
High praise indeed. Uh, Sesson, talk to us. How's it going? What's up? What's new? What's hip? What's happening? Again, nothing hip for sure. Guaranteed. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, it, it's been busy around my household. I couldn't tell you with what, but I have felt like I stopped work mm. and I, you know, turned to my family and we're just constantly going. And one of the things that I've tried and been working really hard to figure out how to like balance is the cooking and trying to figure Ooh. out how do I cook quality, healthy food quickly, right? Like, and that's the trifecta. Like, that's the perfect combination if you can, you know, make it happen. Quality, healthy, fast. And I have searched high and low for all the recipes, right? And oh my gosh, what are you landing on? The same things. That's what I'm. Yeah. I'm landing on the same food, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm seeking variety. You know, I made a chili for the second time ever, which turned out pretty good. Tofu chili, Lovely. tofu Yum. crumble chili. Like we're doing. I don't know if I've mentioned it before on the show, but I'm doing weekday vegans, where on the okay. weekdays we don't eat. Um, dairy or meat um but on the weekends we go for it right go balls to the wall (laughs) we destroy those animals it almost cancels out the week because sure oh we're making up for the week which is like probably not the way i think it's supposed to go like (laughs) if the point is getting healthy um but it's like we feel deprived by friday and we're just like what is the thing that has the most meat to You know how some people say they don't miss it or, you know, their system changes and they start to reject it. Yeah, we're just like, mm, you know, come Thursday, I'm like, oh, I can't wait for a chicken tomorrow. Or like, I can't wait to have that pork ramen. That I'm... Can't wait to have so, that pork. No, mentally we're getting there, but we're definitely giving it a go. <laughs> well, listen, um, I think having the weekends will help you sustain the weekday vegan. Absolutely. Dietary I, I, plan. I don't even mind at all being vegans on the weekdays. It's just a matter of can I make enough food with that to me Ugh. tastes different enough every day. I get pretty tired Ugh. of eating the same food. Yeah, right? and vegan is hard too. Like if there were eggs and dairy in there, I could see how that would be easy to sustain. The vegan is challenging. It gets a little tricky. Butter tastes incredible. Yeah. Me and butter uh, not it's only that. the start of the week here. We <laughs> want to be careful. She's got to make it four more days. Yeah, true. Uh, and we go as far as like, our pastas are like uh, brown rice pastas or... Oh, so you're like gluten-free too? Yeah, that started on accident. No, more purposeful. We thought Dre had okay. like gluten like intolerance. Okay. And so we shifted certain foods and thought, oh, this isn't actually bad. And then we ended up being, you know, sticking to those ingredients. And also the flour, just when you think about how um, a lot of pasta is processed. So we were like, let's shift to some brown rice. You could also make your own pasta and you don't have to worry about the process. You know, we've done that before. I think I almost ate my arm off while you and David made uh, raviolis one time. I'm just watching. It's so good. Beautiful. It was wonderful. I'll make like batches of pasta and freeze it. It's really fantastic. That's the trick. I've got to make it in large quantities. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise waiting for like my pasta to roll out of that machine, I can't do it. It's just, it takes way too long. (laughs) So, but I'm getting there. I'll report back with some really exciting recipes. I have faith. Thank you. Exciting. So I have been reading slash listening to the audiobook of the recent Outlander book that came out. I think it's like book 10 that came out. Um, ladies, (laughs) 
This series is phenomenal. The beginning of the book was a little slow. I was sharing with one of my friends, Melissa. Like, I actually kind of got bored and I stopped listening to it. I started listening to it again because I oftentimes don't read books. I listen to them, especially during the academic year. Um, but that's okay. We're not going to judge me for that. Um, <laughs> and also, you can read them at like 1.3 time and get through it a lot faster. Um, but anyway, it picked up so intensely towards the end that I was listening to it on all the car rides. The kids were like, Mommy, I don't want to listen to this anymore. Sorry. It's just how it is. I was listening to it falling asleep. Um, they was like, you want to watch a show? No, I have to listen to my book. But anyway, it finally ended. And um, on a amazing cliffhanger that was both emotionally satisfying but heartbreaking, I uh, know that her next book isn't probably going to come out for another five years because that's how uh, Diana Gabaldone rolls. I don't know how I'm going to handle it, but highly recommend mm -hmm reading the outlander series the tv show is fantastic but those books whew, unlike anything else are you talking about the prequel or are you talking about the actual series there is no prequel there's well just they're series. making a prequel show you didn't hear about that do i have scoop oh, on that you no know? you're right they are it is yeah i have heard about this no i don't think she has any prequel books she does flashbacks in the books to like when Jamie's parents were younger and what have you. So you kind of have an idea of what these shows are going to be about. Um, but no, the books are not about those necessarily, except for the flashbacks. Um, but that would could be. I have not even seen a trailer yet for those new. No, um, but it's a totally series. different cast. I hear they're planning yeah. for. But I was, yeah, I it's was... the main character's parents, I believe. Yeah. Um, and when we meet the main character both of his parents have passed right so in the actual outlander series both of his parents have passed um so it's meeting those brian and whoever his mom is i don't know anyway but highly recommend also i highly recommend because i need to talk to it about someone my one friend who <laughs> reads all these books with me is like a book and a half behind Oh. And, and they're huge spoilers in this book. So if you've read the latest book of Outlander, get in my DMs. Let's talk about it because, oh boy, <laughs> oh my. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot about what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So, for the first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in this culture that is pop um, that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Excited to learn about this new show. Sesson, talk to us. Yeah, so Abbott's not so new, but it's new to me for sure. I think I um, discovered it sort of um, at the height of like the social media around the Emmys that the main characters had oh. picked up on the show and just really excited to watch it. And then, um, you know, we started watching it a, maybe three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, and haven't been able to stop. Uh, we just got <gasps> oh through the gosh. first season of Abbott Elementary. It's an American, um, like a mockumentary um, uh, sitcom uh, that's originated um through ABC, but for some reason we're watching it on HBO. I'm not sure how that works. Oh. But, um, we're streaming it through there. 
Anyways, um, Quinta Brunson is the um, creator and one of the executive producers um, uh, on the show, wrote the first episode, the pilot as well. And um, it's interesting because currently I direct a Center for Achieving Black Wellness Anti-Racist Education. One of our initiatives is focused on how do we um, address the major gap in black educator pipeline and making sure we figure out how to support the efforts to see more black educators within schools, particularly K through 12. And so watching the show for me has been sort of like, there's been some work sort of things that have come up in terms of ideas, but also just feeling like as an educator in the K through 12, I would find the show really interesting to watch. There's a lightheartedness about the show, but it also gets at some of the critical issues that exist within the K through 12 system. Um, and the, just how much teachers have to work to really support their children in systems yeah. that are not created, you know, for success. Um, so the main character in the show is a second grade teacher and, um, she's fairly new to sort of the teaching world, but, um, she's sort of the person that rallies everyone together, um, all the other teachers on the show. And, um, there's this core group of teachers that, you know, are the characters for the show. And, um, it's based on a fictional predominantly black um, school in Philadelphia. Um, and the group is a very dedicated, passionate group of teachers. Um, and they have this pretty tone deaf principal. Oh gosh, she's <laughs> um, so fantastic. Hilarious. I mean, every <laughs> character in that show is perfectly sort of casted in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, and so as much as you want to see her go in the sense that she's not a good you can't i don't think the show could be what it is without her so i'm really uh kudos to the folks who casted that show um but you know together they face all these challenges right of of working for a public um, school system and trying to uh, fill in the gaps where they can where funding is a challenge um you know and they're a group that what I really appreciated and what I want to speak to today is just the way they come together as a community of educators trying to um, do the best they can to support um, their students and trying to make up for the gaps that exist, right? Trying to create a, opportunities that um, maybe the school system isn't necessarily supporting them and providing, but they're going to go the extra mile to make sure their kids get what they need. Um, wow. And so the way they do that, right, there's, of course, a lot of banter there's a lot of differences in the way they approach maybe their teaching philosophies right and their strategies for things because some are more seasoned and some are newer and some are more bright-eyed and some are more mm-hmm. um, a little bit more um, burned by the system so it's interesting to watch them come together in support of each other despite sometimes the way they approach things differently but as the episodes go by you get to see that they start to really develop um, connections to one another and support of one another. And it really brought up this idea, especially when you work in an environment that you don't always feel like is setting you up for success, um, how your community of people that you work with can ultimately really help sustain you and keep you feeling connected to the role that you play and the job that you have. Um, and I think we all experience that in our own work too, like thinking about how the people we work with can either really make our experience one that is positive and satisfying um, or productive or one that is not, right? So I wanted to talk about work friendships, right? Like the work family kind of setup that we have sometimes and or don't have. Um, and so what I thought about was like, okay, well, I know how I experience it, right? My own experiences. And, you know, I talked to friends about 
their work, but I don't really ask a lot about like the people that they work with. And I don't even really think about how the people I work with help sustain me in my work. So I went and, mm. you know, did what any nerd researcher does. And I went, you know, did some reading and read some articles and um, just came up with a few stats that I thought were pretty interesting. Oh, cool. Um, so a couple different studies, um, some larger, some smaller, but um, I'll just speak to some of the ones that sort of stood out to me. Um, and some of these were consistent findings across a couple studies. So one thing that I determined from a few different articles is that friendships are really meaningful in people's sense of the way they engage their work, their job satisfaction, their general job satisfaction, right? Not necessarily their satisfaction with the people they work with, but their overall job satisfaction and their productivity are all influenced by the friendships that they have. So it really, you know, across many areas, the friendships that you build at work, they have an influence. Um, workplace friends also can reduce burnout, um, which I thought was interesting in a culture where we often talk about burnout and fatigue. Yeah. Right? Um, they also reduce, like, and consistent with the burnout idea, they also reduce turnover. Um, so people feel more connected and engaged with their work because they know there are people there to support them. You know, they have those moments to maybe feel validated by people to understand what they're going through. Um, so they have something that connects them to the work and keeps them from looking elsewhere, I imagine, sometimes, right? And feeling like I'm part of something here. I'm part of a larger community. And I don't necessarily feel like I want to let that go because I'm not necessarily enjoying some of my work, right? Um, there was one study by um, a firm, Future Workplace, um, that... Um, surveyed over 2,000 uh, managers and employees in 10 different countries, and they found that almost two-thirds of the participants of that survey said they would be more inclined to stay at their company if they had more friends. Interestingly enough, two-thirds. Um, and this was especially true for millennials um, that they surveyed, um, who considered their manager sort of at their job or sort of the upper um, management to be more of like the parent overhead and their coworkers to be more like their work family. So there's something about that peer collegial support that feels mm -hmm. like that's the level in which I think they feel most connected to people. Um, another study in 2017, a few uh, years dated, but in a study of uh, 1,052 companies found that nearly 57% of folks said that having a good friend at work made their job more enjoyable. Um, and in a separate study, but similar, um, they found 70% of employees said friends at work um, were crucial to the workplace happiness, to really influencing them. And then in another study of more than like 3,000 workers um, by RAD, they found that one in five people say they um, face hostile and threatening work environments. So when you think about like just the kind of environments people are working in and what friendships right healthy particularly friendships can do to really counter that um you understand why it's so important for people so it's really interesting to me i agree it is interesting and it kind of speaks to why we see like upper management and people kind of trying to encourage people to treat their fellow employees and peers like family you hear work family and that like push down from the top down but it's interesting because 
all of these statistics point to the importance of friends, but what it doesn't necessarily talk about is a work environment conducive to these friendships making. And I think that work environment is likely what is causing reduced burnout, not necessarily just having friends, because you can have a ton of friends, but it's not going to overcome a toxic work environment, right? So I think friends in the workplace certainly are good, but I think the workplace environment and the structure there also has to not be so toxic um, to allow for those friendships to develop. And, um, you know, it does become kind of concerning to a certain extent when our only friends are in our work. You know, we have to have a work-life balance. And when our only friends are the ones we have at work, it does make me worried about how much we're allowed to live our life outside of work as well. Yeah. And I think about people who leave the state to go to, you know, who like pick up and sort of reestablish themselves elsewhere and Mm -hmm. how the people at work become their work family, right? Like they may have friends and family outside of that workplace, but they don't have the accessibility to them. Either they're working long hours or literally proximity wise and how I do wonder too, like, even if you do connect with people at work, if there's a way to establish those friendships so that the work doesn't always feel like it's overlapping. I imagine that's hard when you're not talking about work um, often, but there's something about just having the built-in system of a network of friends available to you potentially Mm -hmm. that work provides, which I think is really critical because you look at one of the things that affect mental health the most, and that's a sense of like loneliness, right? And feeling Isolation. isolated, and it's a really yeah. big one. So I'm glad that people, you know, use those opportunities. But I also think yeah, sure. COVID has made it really difficult to also lean into that. I think um, some of the studies I was looking at was talking about how COVID has really shifted people's sense of how easy it is to build friendships and maintain them through this medium. I mean, it's one of the things that I miss the most about being in my office more is just being able to walk down the hall and to talk and check in with people. And, and that's not an option. You have to be super intentional online to do something like that. It's interesting. I think where I work, we're sort of spread out. There's so many different clinics and offices and office buildings. I mean, we're sort of um, all over this uh, Metroplex that in some ways, I think the reverse happened where COVID sort of um, pushed people more virtual and so offered a more accessible avenue to connect mm. with people that we otherwise were not seeing very often in person because the schedules were so crazy. So I love this show. I'm obsessed with Abbott Elementary. I hugely recommend it. Um, and I think there's this lovely piece about how you're describing us and how they're bonding through this really hard work that they're doing that they really care very much about while also sort of um, there's like a mentoring component too that's really lovely and this um, instrumental support that happens when uh, part of the job becomes hard for one there are several other people to sort of step in and help get what needs to be done done for someone who's either tired or doesn't have the resources or um, you know doesn't have the behind the scenes uh, dangerous connections that Melissa does or I mean they have or the seniority and the power right there's lots of lovely overlaps in how they support each other I am obsessed with the show it's fantastic it is I enjoy it and I love to see the connections that people are building on the show it sort of pushes me to want to like how do I establish more of that in my own world right like you see them sharing lunches and eating together and gardening together and doing these things it's so cute yeah 
the gardening with Jacob and Barbara, like I just cannot even, they get out the hats and they have the same gardening hats and the same taste in music. And oh my God, it's so cute. <laughs> good show. Good one. That's yeah. adorable. I will have to check it out. Next up, we're going to do an academic deep dive into the new article in the Journal of Child Development titled, Are Mobile Phone Ownership and Age of Acquisition Associated with Child Adjustment? by Dr. Sun at the University of Minnesota and Farish Heidel, Drs. Matheson, Desai, and Robertson at Stanford. When should kids get their first cell phone? That is not an easy question for most parents. On the one hand, parents want to make sure they have easy access to their kids, that their kids can get help when they need it, and kids can stay connected to their friends who are these days intensely uh, digital. On the other hand, phones may be an easy portal to social media, sexually explicit content, and cyberbullying. Research has also identified cell phones may be tied to depressive symptoms, less sleep, and worse grades. Despite this, half of kids today have their first smartphone by 11 years old. But are the impacts of cell phone use on children's development inevitable? Or does the age a child get their first phone determine whether the phone promotes independence and connection instead of failing grades and falling self-esteem? So now I'm going to phone a friend. Oh, Sarah, are you there? And ask Sarah, what did these authors find? Yeah, I was excited about this study just because I feel like it's a question that gets talked a lot about that um, I think especially that like older kids yeah. get, right? You get towards middle school and it's like this whole sort of intense debate about should kids have cell phones? When should that happen? What kind of access should they have? How much access should parents retain uh, how much monitoring should we do? It's sort of um, a really intensely debated question, I think. And I'm not sure there's a ton of guidance about this. Uh, so this study specifically was looking at whether the age kids first received their own cell phones was uh, tied to changes in different measures of child adjustment. And so what they used was a five-year prospective cohort. So it is a collection of uh, Latino and Latina kids from low-income neighborhoods that were already enrolled in a clinical trial testing a weight gain prevention intervention in Northern oh, California. And this was between 2012, 2017, so a little bit older. Um, but it was 263 kids from 236 homes uh, about half female, average age nine and a half, seventy-four percent had a household uh, income of less than thirty-five thousand. In general, as I said, they were from lower-income neighborhoods, um, and what they found was that phone ownership rates across the five years goes up dramatically. So, at average, at the baseline, they were nine and a half years old. So. Um, uh, at baseline, at the start of the study, 15% of these kids had their own phone. By the end, 92% mm. of kids had their own phone. So there's this like exponential growth in just ha kids having phones. And most of those kids got their first phone between the ages of 11 and 13, on average 11.62 years. So anywhere from seven and a half to 15 and a half 
which is a huge difference. Yeah. Seven and a half, 15, those developmentally totally different. So among the kids that had mobile phones, smartphones at the beginning of the study were about 44%. At the end, it was almost every single child's phone was a yeah. smartphone. Uh, and that's important because it's part of what they looked at, too, to see if that makes a difference. As you oh. could imagine, right, smartphone changes what you have access to when you're using it versus sort of a, some of the more child-friendly, I think, mobile phones that okay. just allow for phone calls. or. Uh, and so what they found was that owning a mobile phone and the age at which they got their first phone, neither were significantly associated with the level of depressive symptoms that kids were experiencing with their grades, with parent-reported sleep habits, or objectively measured sleep. So they used accelerometry to measure sleep patterns in these kids over this uh, weight gain prevention intervention. So they could also look at when they fell asleep, how long they stayed asleep, et cetera. School nights, non-school nights didn't matter. Uh, They also looked at changes in each of those things over time, not associated with getting a cell phone. The only thing that they found that was significant was when they just looked at smartphone ownership, that owning a smartphone was significantly associated with a smaller decrease in depressive symptoms per year. So what they explored then was whether gender and uh, what they refer to as sexual maturity or sort of phase of puberty might moderate, might sort of be tied to why they were finding no connection. And they did find a few sort of interesting connections. Cell phone ownership was associated with less depressive symptoms for boys and for kids earlier in puberty. Uh, Ownership of a phone was associated with a little bit longer sleep for kids who are earlier in puberty, a little bit shorter sleep for kids later in puberty. So it's not sort of this universal across Mm. the board finding in any regard, right? Any respect. So what they're suggesting, uh, and I think this is um, a really sort of interesting takeaway, there just might be no universal right time for kids to have their own cell phone. Which, if you're listening, maybe doesn't feel very helpful, but I think what is important is thinking about how a phone affects a kid might just be impacted by whether that individual child is mature enough to know how to use it appropriately and also how susceptible they are to the effects of technology. Are they somebody that is comfortable being open about their experiences and you feel like they're going to come to you if they have a problem, right? If they're being bullied uh, online or if they are struggling to sleep, are they going to be open? How much do you feel like they are mature enough to sort of put it away at night when they need to? Um, And uh, really, it's probably much more important to be thinking about how kids use the phone, who they're communicating with, and what they're actually seeing and doing on those phones. And potentially, especially for older kids later in puberty, uh, to rather than thinking about what specific age might be right uh, in terms of child development. Well, and it sounds like the quote, there's no right time for kids, is um, the takeaway for me is for the parents to use their intuition. They know their kids best. What do you think? Um, your kids will need and are capable of handling um, would be my takeaway from this is trust yourself and keep those open dialogues with your kids about it. Yeah. Harder to do, I imagine, when your young, say, 12-year-old is saying, all my friends have phones. Why can't I have a phone? Uh, And also maybe hopefully sort of um, 
more power to you that if you feel like it's not the right time for your kids, even if you know right. quote, all their friends have them, uh, it's probably extremely important that if you feel like it's not a fit for your kid that you hold off until it is. A hundred percent. I agree. Yeah, I, gosh, I'm having a hard time sort of believing <laughs> that it's in fact doesn't have a greater effect on just given my understanding of just the harmful effects that social media and, you know, that kind of level of distraction, how often it is distracting for kids to have smartphones and be on their devices. I mean, you know, I watch children who don't blink, who don't lift their head up for a conversation (laughs) from a table, like who don't, right? How does not have like, you know, more effects on them, in my opinion, more harmful effects. Um, I definitely, you know, would be interested in a larger scale study too to see. I think a lot of the research on, you know, quote, screen time on um, anxiety, depression, which is kind of what you're referring to, um, is almost all cross-sectional. So a lo- some of the research actually says that screen time helps kids regulate their anxiety if they're highly anxious kids. So there is some indication, though a small body of it, um, that, you know, it can be a tool to help regulate um, anxiety, um, but, but of course, a, a larger scale study um, mm-hmm. needs to be done, and, and you know it's different for each individual kid. Like my oldest is going to be very different than my middle child in terms of timing of smartphones. I already know that. Um, <laughs> it's definitely going to be the case, and that's okay. Like there, it doesn't have to be same within your family either. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea that there's no universal sort of approach to it makes sense in many ways, like so many other things, right? Like it's often based on the needs of the person. But I also think it's, there are a lot of folks who are buying cell phones for their kids much more arbitrary, like not with a lot of intention behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that makes, I think that's where I'm like, sometimes it's helpful to have some hard numbers, right? Because it gives people like a better sense of like, okay, this is probably an appropriate or not appropriate time because I worry that people are just not going to put that effort to really understanding what their child's needs are in the same way as, you know, versus but where there is like, perhaps, a more, I'm not saying a hard line. I mean, yeah. But, yeah, I, do, but I also think like trusting parents, they know their kids the best, you know? Yeah. I think they, and this is lower income families, so it's not like they're willy-nilly necessarily giving their kids cell phones, right? Where you might find more in upper and middle class families just keeping up with the Joneses types of situations. Um, but I do love the message of like, <laughs> trust parents to know what's best for their kids too. You know, when screen time, how much screen time, you know, what age, Um and there are all sorts of settings on cell phones as well for like kids and regulating um, kids and knowing what apps they're downloading and all of those things um, to help parents monitor that day-to-day activity. Yeah. There's also, have you all heard of the movement um, uh, Wait Till Eight? That was definitely cited in this paper mm-hmm. was that that is one sort of public message that one organization is trying to push out, I think, about not giving kids phones before that age. Before yeah, age. That's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting website. I mean, there's a lot of clinical like psychologists behind that. But again, I'm curious where the science is in that finding too, in that approach or that message. Yeah. Well, it's not eight years old, to be clear. It's eighth grade. Wait eighth until eighth grade. Wait till eighth. Yeah. yeah. 
so we were just talking about that this morning with some family friends that had stayed with us. So it's really interesting that you hit on this study today. Um, but yeah, the hope is that parents are being really intentional. That's like the big message is like to really know what the needs of your child are. Well, and uh, to be fair, these researchers did not look at how much the phone is being used. This isn't a study of if your kid uses a cell phone for 15 hours a day versus two hours a day, how that might be tied to development. That's different research. And it didn't look at anxiety. It only looked at depressive symptoms. And so there are definitely, as these researchers themselves talk about, lots of room to continue to explore technology. But I think um, there's variation in what might be a positive outcome versus what might be a negative outcome and uh, tying that to individual kids' child development rather than sort of thinking broadly across all kids is, I think, um, the takeaway from both what you all are speaking about in terms of knowing your kid really well and what this study is specifically looking at. Especially kids who have maybe certain needs that, you know, I think of children dealing with body image and really like the research out there on the harmful effects of social media and you know, having continued access to that kind of messaging can be really harmful. I think of children with ADHD and like you said, PR, for some of them, that can actually be a helpful regulatory tool. Like there's just different needs that kids have that I think could be helpful, could be harmful, but always do your homework, know your children, have the conversations. I think that's critical. Yeah. Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But this is going to come as a shock. A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. What? This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice that you'd like us to talk about it, please send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at attachpodcast, or go straight to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, as always, please kindly rate, head, review, and subscribe to um, the podcast and let a friend know about it or a co-worker in this case, um, they will certainly love it. I mean, hopefully they will. Um, if they don't, we can't be in charge of that, can we? Also, um, we always have a bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. Um, if you want that bonus content, please kindly become a member at patreon.com slash attached. So today we're going to keep with an old favorite, our lovely social media. Um, forever with gems of information for us. First up is an Instagram reel, so fancy, um, sent by a listener, Becca. Thank you so much, Becca, for sending this to us. This reel is by Melissa Urban. Here's why over-explaining or justifying your boundary can often backfire. As women, we've been conditioned to need a damn good reason for setting a limit. And then we feel like we have to explain that limit in great detail so the other person can agree with it and therefore respect it. The problem is what sounds like a good explanation to us can feel like a problem to fix 
on the part of the other person. So when you say, no, we're not inviting guests over for Thanksgiving this year. It's a really busy time. The house is a mess because we're going through renovations. I'm super busy at work. The kids will be out of school. It's just not a good time. What might happen is your mother-in-law says, oh, you won't even know we're there. We'll be so helpful with the kids. We can help you with the renovations. And like, maybe that's not the point. And now you feel like you have to justify your justification for the limit instead of just saying, no, we're not having visitors for Thanksgiving mm. this year. In some situations, sharing more context around your limit in the spirit of vulnerability can help deepen your connection and improve the relationship. Mm -hmm. Before you automatically okay. launch into this giant lengthy explanation, ask yourself, do I need to explain or can I just set the limit? Woo-wee. Over explaining limits, give context or just give the limit. Woods, good or bad advice? What are you thinking? So I'm not sure there's like research specifically on how best to set a boundary necessarily. There might be. I just cannot think of it in the moment as I'm listening. I can only sort of think of the fact that this is exactly how my mom taught me to set boundaries. Oh. Which is um, in the realm of qualitative research, right? End of one experience is worthwhile. <laughs> a case and, study. And matters. That's right. Uh, and um, I would say that that is, I do think that's an interesting interpretation about what happens when we explain our boundaries is that some people may feel like, oh no, now I can sort of accommodate it, I can fix it. And then you're sort of, you're stuck in a little bit of a trap um, in terms of it may be extra hard to then sort of reset the boundary of thank you so much, I super appreciate that. The answer is still no, that's a little bit trickier depending on sort of what your relationship is. Uh, and also, I think it's not necessary uh, to necessarily explain, um, especially if their boundary is a no, I can't do that, I can't join you, we won't be able to accommodate that, right? It can sometimes just be a no. And I do think um, that is sometimes harder to do up front, but potentially easier in the long run. Okay, so we're saying good advice from I'm saying good Woods. advice. I'm not sure it's based on sure science. It's based in science, just my own scientific experience. In uh, your life? With my own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, your therapeutic and personal experience is also meaningful. Uh, Sassan, thoughts, good or bad advice? I think overall I like it. I think when the person in the video said, you know, just sort of be thinking about before you respond, I really like that because yeah. it suggests that you don't have to just do it one way every time you set a boundary. I think that was sort of suggestive yeah. of like, perhaps there's different ways you can set that boundary, but to do it with intention, right? Whatever you say, when you say it with an explanation or when you don't, just be mindful of what the implications could be of that. There's something about when you say it with an explanation too, if you are setting that boundary because there's some barriers that perhaps if they were overcome, you could change that boundary. That might be a good time then to offer the rationale because maybe there is something the person could say to help make you more flexible about the idea and that you're open to that, right? As opposed to, these are just some of the reasons, but my overall desire is just not to do it. Then I think that it makes sense to just give like a simpler answer in yeah. that sense because you're Smart. not looking yeah. 
So I think really being thoughtful, if you have the time to really think through it, of course, that that's is, a good point. Um, and you're not sort of at that moment abruptly having to respond to someone. I think that's helpful. I like that actually. Advice is like, okay, be mindful of if this is a no, no matter what you tell me an offer, or this no could turn into a soft no, potentially yes, <laughs> if, if you convince me, right? So. So good advice all around, I think was what we're saying, um, given context. So um, this next one is from TikTok. It is a stitch. Um, the first image, the kind of title is point of view. Mom at a play date is gentle parenting hot. And this is his hot take alert. This creator's hot take alert. His TikTok name is whole parent, by the way. Did my son just curb stomp your son? Ready to hear something that most parents are not ready to hear? You already know I've stitched this creator before. I have no problem with people making comedy about gentle parenting. But it is very revealing. And in all of these POV gentle parenting videos, the only characters who matter are the adults. And that is because many people, dare I say most people, in public and in social settings do not parent for the benefit of their children. In those settings, when there are other adults watching, they parent performatively for the benefit of the adults. No, you share that toy right now. We don't take things. I got it. Yeah, no, he's fine. No, I'll get it. I'll get it. Yes, that's very bad. And do you know why we do it? Because we lack the differentiation and self-esteem to know that when our kid does something problematic, it's not always a reflection on us. So in those moments, we try to separate ourselves from our kids so nobody will judge us. And all that does is show our deep insecurities. So if you want to work on it, come along for the ride. All right, a lot of like tidbits there. Not really going to focus on the gentle parenting um, piece or aspect of it. Um, but what are your thoughts about parenting in public and his take on parenting in public for the most part is for how we do it, I suppose, is for other parents. And I guess the fact that we shouldn't do that, I guess, is the good or bad advice. It's somehow suggesting that parenting, it feels like is different than any other behavior. I mean, oh, interesting. Um, Talk more. Everything that we do when observed by oh, other people, like our behavior, always shifts in front of other people, especially large groups of people, especially when we're embarrassed or ashamed or sad or frustrated. When those emotions affect our ability to be sort of calm and present, and then you're on top of that adding a whole bunch of people that are watching you. I'm not sure that's performative. Uh, Meaning that language sounds mm. so like blaming or judgmental or like that is intentional. Does that happen? Absolutely. It drives my husband right. bananas when that happens at like a birthday party for children. Like that obviously is for other people watching right. and your child just continued to, I think the first woman said curb stomp. That's a problem. Uh, but I, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's I, behavior that we want to like performatively say for everyone. Curb, curb stopping <laughs> is yeah, not acceptable. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's not necessarily intentional, right? That lot right. our behavior often shifts in front of other people. And that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it makes us sort of more cognizant of our tone or our patience or, right? Sometimes it can help people be aware of like, oh, if I had that conversation at home, I might have been a little bit more mm. harsh or faster to move in or less patient or... But here, this having people watch can also check behavior too, that maybe we can sort of slow ourselves down. Uh, in general, I just think it's not a problematic thing that we sometimes shift who we are. I think yeah. it was performative and not for the purpose of the kid. Sure, but anyways. So yeah, the thought is 
perhaps quote bad advice because being performative in our behavior is a normal part of human behavior and sometimes that's okay it might actually produce better uh, parenting behaviors too well and I don't think I would call it performative I just right. think it would write that when we're sort of in social systems uh, how we act can shift I think if it is performative and then maybe we want to sort of reconsider our motivations yeah okay Sesson thoughts and if it is performative, then like you said, it's a reflection of the system also being judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like, and so you're doing it because you also don't want to be criticized and critiqued. Like there's something yeah. about not feeling Right. Who accepted. are the other parents around you? Yeah. yeah. So it's like sometimes you're doing what you have to do to keep from feeling shamed or critical, especially yeah. if you're coming from um, like a minoritized background. If you're a racial minority, like I know my parenting is being, you know, policed mm. or, mm. you know, criticized. Um, more often than if I'm a white parent. So yes, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be more careful and thoughtful in my approach if I have to. And that's because society dictates that based on the white supremacy that exists in this country. So I think it's easy for someone to say that, but it's also you have to sort of think about the people who are having to maybe do that in response to a system that isn't necessarily working as a community to parent children. So yeah, that was very beautifully said. Um, I I think understanding the context there and if you find yourself needing to be a performative parent all the time, which I could also imagine would be very, very exhausting. What is the context there and is there anything that you can do to shift the context if you have the power um, to do it, that environment that you are publicly parenting in? Um, I do a lot of whispering in ears (laughs) and also a lot of like before we go into this place. All right. What are the rules? What do we have? Tell me the rules. The older kids. The youngest one is going to be a, a disaster right now. He's one and a half. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I do a lot of prep and a lot of whispering in the ears. What's going on? Uh, in fact, to the point sometimes where my oldest, she knows that maybe, or the youngest too. I mean, both of them. They'll say, they'll know that they did something inappropriate and I'll look at them and she'll come up to me and she'll say, Mommy, please, I don't want to lecture in the car on the way home. (laughs) I'm like, well, we probably are going to have a conversation about it because you know exactly what happened. Um, So anyway, that's one way of doing it. Next, um, we're going to TikTok. Um, This is another stitch. So the original creator says there's um, really fast talking rap music behind as the backdrop. Um, And the point of view is wife at 6 a.m. explaining all the things, quote, we're going to get done today because you have the day off. It's funny because it's relatable, right? Like it's relatable when you like you have a day off and your wife's like, do this, do this. We got to get this done. We got to get this done. But you know what would be even funnier if the roles were reversed and like she didn't have to keep track of everything that needed to be done for all the people all the time. And, you know, grocery shopping or cooking or getting the house ready for the next season and all that kind of stuff. Like imagine the brain space she would have if you were in charge of remembering some of those things because it's work to remember and then tell other people to do it as well how much would that benefit our marriages if like as partners we shared the remembering of things just as much as we shared like the to-do things then we could both get days off we could both have leisure time and that would benefit our well-being and our marriages and like it would be like a full circle moment but (laughs) why would we do that 
What are your thoughts? Good or bad advice? Oof, it's fantastic advice, well delivered. Uh, there is so much research, especially over the last few years, to support the uh, continued, uh, often gendered imbalance of uh, housework, childcare, and mental and emotional management and uh, labor that goes on in families. For women, this continues to be more of a burden in opposite sex relationships where uh, they, over the last several decades, are increasingly likely to work outside the home for paid employment and not much more likely to share equally in any of the housework childcare responsibilities. This is a big deal and I think if couples want to make a big impact on their relationship this is an area to do it i completely agree with that also i would like to shout out the creator i apologize for not doing that initially uh at diary of an honest mom is that creator um the point of what you're saying too sarah is we've seen a lot of like op-eds and a lot of like uh pop psych type Uh, I I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it in a good way about this marriage imbalance is leading to a lot of divorce recently, which is what a lot of people kind of predicted through COVID. And we're kind of seeing it come to a head in a lot of like social media type uh, anecdotal information and op-eds, like I said. Um, And so I'm sure the research will follow um, eventually what's going on. But Sesson, what are your thoughts? Good or bad advice? I think it's good advice and I also love her delivery. I like her. She's great. Personality on there just came through in a way that just um, I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I mean, we live in a male dominated patriarchal society. And for as long as that's the case, I don't see this shifting in as meaning. I mean, we know that for a long time now, women have been in the workforce at equal, you know, levels as men in education. I mean, but we're not seeing a shift in that household, you know, that imbalance. And it's concerning, of course, and definitely we're seeing the implications of that, but there's larger systemic issues that affect that, right? And I think often we think about it in the, um, maybe at the relational level, right? But we're also having to think about, you know, the systems and the institutions that are really Mm -hmm. maintaining those systems as well. And really having to think about that as part of the solution also, because I mean, it has real significant implications on the family. And um, I think also the way we're raising our children, right, in these gender norms. And I see it often I, at the playground. I, you know, you read about it. People are still raising their children across gender lines. And it's like they're going to grow up to enter relationships where they continue to mm-hmm. perpetuate those ways of engaging the opposite gender and the assumptions and expectations that come with that. So we have a lot of work to do to tackle a this lot of work. current um, not the current, but this shift that we're seeing in marriage satisfaction rates and divorce, because there's a lot of issues at play that are affecting it and they're systemic in nature. Um, but it is something I see in my practice. It's something that we, it's consistent with what's in the research. It's like, it's a very important concern and it's not one that can just be easily shifted. It has to come down to really appreciating, um, not just what the person does, but understanding how women in general need to be respected in our society really differently for what they do and all the ways they show up. It's just, I think 
there's a lot of work there. I agree. A lot of work. Keeping with TikTok, this is, um, you know, honestly, I don't know what this reality show is, but I do think it's a reality show and one partner is talking to another partner. I think they were given questions. If I could leave it as vaguely as possible. What one thing would you change about me? And why? Be honest, I can take on that. I will. I will. I would change situations in life that led you to your defenses. I would change every one of them. And I'd stand there in front of them and bat them away. So they were set up to, you know, for couples to kind of like fight a little bit like what one thing would you change about me um and his partner kind of did something unexpected um i don't know if i want to talk about this in terms of good or bad advice because i think generally it's good um from my perspective um if you guys don't think it is then talk to me about that but i'm curious from your perspective what makes it good what's so it sounds to me like what that person's partner was responding with was externalizing what could have been a very personal criticism about, mm -hmm. I would change your defenses, how defensive you are, what that looks like, um, which would be really personal and also could then therefore raise a lot of that defensiveness. We don't like to be told what is not great about us even if we are set up to be asking the question in um a reality tv show that's not something that we nobody loves to hear but sort of reframing and externalizing that in terms of changing situations that have created those behaviors that show up when you feel unsafe or you feel vulnerable or you feel like you need to protect yourself there are situations in your life that have created that for you and that's what i wish i could take away so that you didn't need to feel yeah. unsafe um those are not their exact words but i think that's what sounds so special about it is it's a pretty careful pretty intentional externalizing that could have been very personal yeah and you saw the first partner kind of prepare himself he said it's okay you can be honest yeah and then yeah. At the end, when he realized that his partner was kind of going a very different direction in a Soft. way that would protect him, he started tearing up at the end. Um, so it was so unexpected and a very healing process. Sesson, from your perspective, um, what are your thoughts of what makes that good? Well, I appreciate the spirit of what he was trying to do. Okay, so maybe it's bad advice from Sesson? No, no, I don't know if I call it bad advice. I just, I want to start by saying I do appreciate that he wasn't, like you both described, like he wasn't um, sort of blaming him for his, the life experiences that have caused him either harm to raise the defenses. I can really appreciate that way of approaching it. At the same time, if he had a wish, I imagine I would think the more helpful wish ultimately would be to say, something about what he could do 
as a result of those defenses to show up differently, right? Like that to me is, because you can't change, like, yes, you could wish you didn't experience it, but you did, right? So as a partner, what can you really do? You can't take those experiences away. You can validate them, which I think may be where he was getting at. But what you do is to really be mindful of what that person's experiences was in the way you engage them moving forward, right? So like to wish that you had the sort of, and I don't know what exactly in this case it would be, sort of the patience, the understanding, the compassion to know how to show up for that partner given the experiences that they have had, right? That feels like the one that's going to get you to a better place in your relationship long-term. Does that make sense? Cool. I like it. It's a different perspective. Patricia, Patricia. <laughs> I didn't say that. I jumped right in because I really, I really liked it. <laughs> Patricia I, is I don't chewing. know. I, I could also see how a sentence like that could say, I wish I could be better because you're so broken. You know, like I could see how like, that could also create defenses like i wish that i knew how to like be i can't figure you out because you're so broken i wish i could be better because it sounds like they do have good communication right so i think maybe the wording of that would need to be (laughs) i hope that's not what i was saying but like i see where maybe that i think what i'm suggesting is that the person's going in the right direction for sure with the comment i think it is really validating and important to acknowledge that you know that Mm. they've experienced some ad you know things in their life right adversities that have impacted how they show up in the relationship clearly that's an important step i said Mm -hmm. you've got to go one step further though as a partner to then know what to do with that and the validating is not enough because you can't erase the experience you can validate it but it's not going to solve the challenges in the relationship if in spite of your understanding you're still going and yeah. saying things a certain way or not being mindful of how triggered your partner is and knowing when to step back. Yeah. So do you know what and I that, mean? I'm- yeah, that does make sense. Okay, so I love it. good advice. And then, you know, take that advice and go a step further. Okay. <laughs> All right, last but certainly not least, again, from uh, TikTok. Um, apparently, I've been on British TikTok for quite some time. So here's another <laughs> British a person. a bit of a British accent also, I think. I have <laughs> A little bit on the show. <laughs> oh, well, how lovely for me. I know. Um, all right, here we go. Well, hold on right there. That yes, you don't do the swipey thing just yet. I get it. That feeling of anxiousness, uncertainty, overwhelm, life. You know, is this just my existence? That monotonous feeling of unfulfilled potential. Feeling of like there is literally no way out. You almost feel like you've been buried. But I'm here to tell you that's normal. I do too. If I can tell myself, then you certainly can. Yes, you, you friggin' beautiful person. You've not been buried, you've been planted. While it's heavy, that buried feeling, it's just a temporary season. What is to come is so amazing. It's so good, promise you. Be patient, storm will pass, and what is brewing is a confident, resilient, shiny, glowing, amazing, that's you, flower of life that has rid the storm. And we won't change that because that is gonna make when we do blossom, you will, you're gonna be a beautiful flower. So sturdy, just solid, rooted foundation of confidence, self-worth, strong, independent, and it's gonna make those shiny, days when we are blossoming in our brightest form so much better so don't stop keep going keep going you're you're a friggin beautiful flower it's coming it's tough right now but wow the shiny days are coming all right (laughs) whoa 
It's like the mental health version of Eye of the Tiger. Like, you know how the Eye of the Tiger gets you going busy? <laughs> I do know. This guy is so fascinating. I follow him on TikTok. Um, his name is Tom Trotter Coaching. He does a lot of fitness stuff, but very positive like this a lot. Um, uh, he doesn't like do like fitness videos that I've seen. It's just like encouraging type videos. And he lives with his mom and he oftentimes does videos where he's like talking to his mom and encouraging his mom or, and his mom is like fully giving him side looks. Like, I think his mom is probably how the rest of the world looks at him. Like this, this is kind of for real. Like this is a lot, but anyway, um, neither here nor there. He's lovely to watch. Like once I start watching him, I can't stop. But then I'm like, oh, this guy's a lot. But anyway, Woods, thoughts, good or bad advice, any part of it. There are a lot of things in here. Uh, sure. Whatever you're into that like top of your head. Yeah. I mean, he's what an enthusiastic cell. Uh, I <laughs> There's a lot of energy all at mm-hmm. the same time adorable energy um i it's not my favorite take on uh there's sort of like a a very common colloquial positive saying around like bloom where you're planted yeah Mm -hmm. it's not my favorite piece of advice uh i don't know that it's necessarily problematic um but it just also isn't necessarily always possible right so the advice seems to be suggesting like no matter what stay exactly where you are like don't even worry about the fact that you're being you are actually feeling buried alive (laughs) you are a flower you will become a flower like just wait and I actually think there are a lot of circumstances I could quickly think of where research would suggest the earlier you get out (laughs) feeling like you're buried alive or you're in a toxic relationship or you're in a very hostile work environment or whatever that relationship and whatever that system might look like that is making you feel so oppressed, if you can get out of that, the sooner the better. You're much more likely to avoid worse mental health outcomes. You're less likely to bring a whole bunch of relationship junk and trauma into the next place you're missing out on potentially other opportunities that are coming by sort of accepting that you're in a situation where you feel buried alive so i don't personally love it just because i can quickly think of all the circumstances where i would in fact spend my time talking with somebody about uh, how we could make them help them get out I agree. It has the flavor of turn lemons into lemonade type of thing. Um, but like worse, like sit there under the dirt like for like, yeah. it'll happen. Event. It doesn't even sort of suggest any agency in the process, right? At least turning lemons into lemonade suggests you have some agency. There might be something in your control in your current situation where then if you sort of identify those pieces, it might feel more like you could take that on. In fact, this is sort of suggesting you're so beautiful and lovely. Just hang out right where you are being crushed alive. Uh, uh. <laughs> like, it's, it's just a lot. So bad advice despite yeah. the, oh, uh, the amazing delivery. Like I so wanted, it, like the way he's delivering it, you want it. So to great. Like, what a so sell. Cool. Like so, and you believe, like if he was telling that to my, I w- would believe that he believes I'm an incredible flower person. <laughs> like that's lovely energy. I just don't love the advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sesson, what are your thoughts, good or bad advice? 
I support um, what Sarah's saying and you're saying here. I think there's something about um, wait and see. Um, something about there's a like have faith, mm. blind faith kind of uh, sort of feel to this. And I think we've got to feel more empowered and have, like you said, more agency in our own wellness. And I think um, when things feel like they may not be establishing, like, you know, you've got to take some action. And I'm not saying not to be patient and right. recognize that some things sometimes feel like they're getting worse before they get better. That's clearly possible, but that's not always the case. With And if he's using a plant metaphor, I mean, not all plants grow and become healthy, right? So like- It's true. If I'm going to be talking- You guys garden, would know, yeah. <laughs> this is coming also from two- non-gardeners we've already established <laughs> Sess and, and I do not have gardening skills. like our, our use of metaphor here it's like eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know plants if you treat them bad they tend to die um yeah so overall we're saying bad advice but my oh my does he deliver it with enthusiasm and passion thanks for listening to attached remember to call us email us or get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.